Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Dr. Gloria Horsley. Uh, today we're talking about a topic of where does sadness end and depression begin. Looking at the difference between depression and sadness and the misdiagnosis that can go on in some of the mental health communities. Before our break, I was just giving you a rundown on what uh, depression looks like and how it differs from um, from having the loss of a child. One of the things I was just ending on is increase of alcohol, cigarettes, or uh, drug abuse, illegal drugs, uh, talking about the fact that people who have mental illness uh, often use those medications, but unfortunately some of our grieving people are also using medications, and I want to talk a little bit later on with our guest, Dr. Richard Dew, about some of those medications. Right now, uh, I'd like to take a call, but first I want to give you our toll-free number if you'd like to call in. It's one eight six six. Three six nine three seven four two. Please feel free to join us and to talk about our topic today. And so we have Kathy on the line. Hi, Kathy. Oh. Hi, Dr. Hi, Kathy. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh huh. I can. Indeed. Okay. Did you have a question for um, me today? Pardon me. Did you have a question or a comment today? Yes, I do. I have a question. Okay. Um, I'm calling actually from Boston, from the National Conference for Compassionate Friends. Okay. And I've heard so much about this program, and, and I'm just really happy that they have something like this available. Um, my question actually is regarding my son, and mm-hmm. I know you know, as I do, that siblings are often the forgotten mourners. Absolutely. Um, my question is that my son Dan witnessed my daughter's death. He was a passenger in the car when she was killed by a drunk driver, and um, he was very, very close to her. After the accident... For several years, he didn't really talk about. We tried, um, tried counseling. We did a lot of different things, but he convinced everyone that he was fine. It wasn't until like seven years later that suddenly he kind of went into this really deep depression. Um, and then he started talking about: Is that an unusual type thing for a sibling to go so long not to? And then you know, years later to come back up, and he's having flashbacks. And um, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. How old was he when his brother died? When he saw his brother, he was twelve when my when my daughter died. Uh, oh, and he was daughter. Okay, he was twelve years he's old. 20, now he's, he's now nineteen, right? Pardon me. He's now nineteen. No, he's actually now twenty-two. Oh, he's and twenty-two. This, okay, and now right. he's talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's talking about it, and he's you know, really depressed. He's kind of withdrawn from his friends. He doesn't like to do the things he used to do. He is, he is going to counseling. He is on antidepressants. But I don't really see much of a change. I, I'm, you know, really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Um, what? How did he deal with it uh, early on? Did he talk about it at all? Because it's not unusual for a child of, um, he was 12, is that right? He was 12. Correct. Yeah. That's not unusual for an adolescent not to want to deal with it at that time. How did he, was he able to talk about it then or? For the, it was like for the first month, being that we both are the two that witnessed the accident, my husband was unconscious, uh, he would come to me and talk about it. And when he would talk to me, he'd be in this really little childlike voice mm-hmm. and kind of whispering, you know, knowing that 
I'm the only other one who experienced the same thing he did. So he did talk about it for a long time. And then we got to a point where he said, you know, I really don't want to talk about it. It meant you know, like he was in denial or he wanted to forget it ever happened, which I totally understand. And, and how now, was it then? Was that a long period? or That was a long period. It was a long period, actually years, through junior high school, through high school. Mm-hmm. And then once he was done with his activities in school and high school, that's sort of when it seemed like it cropped up. Mm-hmm. We also... Uh, also, another thing that happened is that he witnessed an accident um, about that same time that was very similar to the one that we were in, of all things. Oh, uh, wow. When he was 22? Yes. When he was about 21, he witnessed okay. this accident that the situation was similar, just like ours. As a matter of fact, the girl was 15 years old when she died. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of, you know, the same thing happened is that his voice, when he talked to me about it, his voice took on that childlike tone again. And it was sort of from that point on that um, he really started to go down in the depression. Mm-hmm. And and how long has that been? That's been really going on for about a year and a half. And he's in therapy right now? He is in therapy. He's on um, a couple different um, medications for anxiety and for depression. They say they've been playing with his dosages, and, um, you know, I don't know. I just I don't see really a whole lot um, of change. Yeah. Do you feel, uh, have they talked about him being at risk for suicide? or? They actually did think he was at risk for suicide, and he was hospitalized for a day, but he he actually sort of talked them out of and let them out. <laughs> and um, I don't know. How long ago so was I'm that? About him. How long ago was his suicide? When did that? When he talked about it, when yeah. hospitalized, that was about a year and a half ago. Oh, so it's been a while. And do you, um, yeah, or do you feel like he might be at risk? I mean, the one thing we have to do is keep make sure he's safe right now. You know, I do, you feel I like do he might talk be at risk. I'm really straightforward with him about that. I have that fear, uh, obviously, of that happening and losing another child. Right. Um, and he has, you know, told me now at this point that no that he actually is too anxious to kill himself, that he's afraid of death more than anything. So, um, you know, I think it's just a really deep depression, and I'm wondering if he's going to come out of it. That's my fear, and how, and is this right. a, this um, is a... One of the things, and you feel like you've got a good a good therapist now. Are you happy with your therapist? Yes. Yes. Someone that he really likes, yeah. Oh, good. That's important. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you might want to do if, if you have a big concern about this is to um, have him do a suicide contract with you. Have you ever heard about that? Yes, I have. And I have uh, people are very good about keeping those. If you're nervous, that's just something you might mm-hmm. do to, to put on the side where you write a contract with him that he promises that he will not do anything without talking to you or his therapist. Okay. And you just, you just write it out, and you I put a date bad. on it. Right. So if right. you want to go for a year or something like that, you know, you can do it six months, see what he says. And if he says, you know, this is them or whatever, just say it makes me feel comfortable. Okay. And they're That's very good at keeping those, you know. Um, well, you know, I think he would be. We have really a close relationship, yeah. so that's very helpful. Uh, yeah, um, just I let to... him know about your own anxiety about him. Right. You know, and that you're doing it, he's doing it for you. Yes. And, uh, oh, and, and do that because, um, I found those, those people are very good at honoring those, particularly it gives them hope and, right. uh, it makes them, you know, there's some kind of a comfort in that. 
Now, um, is this therapist is this therapist working with us? Have you have you uh, do you talk to his therapist or is this therapist? Yes, I do. Uh, I do have a dialogue going with his therapist. So, mm-hmm. um, I feel like we are doing everything we can, and maybe you're right. We just have to ride it out. And this this contract uh, with him sounds like a very good idea to me. So, um, I I would like to try that. Yeah, I think that would be a good thing because it, I hear you're feeling some anxiety, and I think that would. Uh, Right. Help with that while he's trying to work these things through, and then of course you know um, we have to keep the hope going and the normalcy. Right. Um, right. Grieving is a normal reaction, and as we develop, sometimes we take the our developmental stages. We still carry the grief with us through okay. the stages. Mm-hmm. So keeping right. that dialogue open and trying to normalize it with him. But also, you know, uh, he, you know, I'm not there to assess any underlying um, oh, no. problems. So, but I would suggest to you that um, keep yourself hopeful, keep yourself right. positive with him, and it sounds like you're a positive person. Okay, and, yes, um, I am. Yeah, and, and keep yourself going, you know, with him and dealing with your daughter's death yourself. And I, I am doing that. Uh, that's where Compassion Friends has really come in. <laughs> right. I don't know where I'd be without them. So, um, yes. Because I, our I, kids uh, really take a cue uh, from the parent on how they are dealing with the loss. And I don't know right. how your husband's dealing with right. it or how. I, I agree. He'll take a, certainly a son will take a cue from dad. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome, and thanks for calling in. And I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so going on with, uh, that was very interesting talking to Kathy about one of the things that I want to say is that you do need to be very, very careful about any kind of uh, suicidal ideation. We call it suicidal thoughts. And I want to give you a website that you can uh, uh access if you have any questions about suicide. It is www.stop, S-T-O-P, A, the letter A, suicide, S-U-I-C-I-D-E, dot org. So you can go on the web and you can download information on what to look for uh, as a suicide risk. And it also talks about a depression risk. And um, you can actually, there's a little test you can take. And there are also things about what not to do. Don't try to cheer the person up or tell them to snap out of it. Don't assume the situation will take care of itself. Don't be sworn to secrecy. No secrecy. Don't argue or debate moral issues. Don't risk your personal safety. Just leave and then call the police if you feel like somebody is homicidal or suicidal. So if you... If you think someone you are, uh, a loved one, is thinking about considering suicide, you need to acknowledge it. You need to take it seriously. Seventy percent of people who commit suicide give some warning of their intentions to do that. And you heard Kathy's son did. Be willing to listen. Even if a professional help is needed, your friend or your loved one will be more willing to seek help if you will listen to him or her. Care. Do voice your concern. Take the initiative to ask what is troubling your friend, coworker, loved one, and attempt to overcome any reluctance on their part to talk about it. And do get professional help immediately. 
And we have a caller, uh, Dr. Richard Dew, on the phone, and we are going to talk to you, be talking to you about medication and antidepressants. Dr. Dew, welcome to our show. Hi, Richard. How are you? Hi. Uh, good. It's good to talk to you. Um, uh, we wanted to talk to my, uh, to our audience a little bit about antidepressants and about, I was talking about grief and loss and how uh, depression looks like grief and loss and how uh, there's a lot of misdiagnosis and treatment for grief and at behaving as though we could cure grief. And I wondered, uh, could you tell the audience a little bit about your experience, uh, how your child died, and uh, talk a little bit about what people wanted you to do as far as uh, medication goes? Okay. Uh, well, my son Brad Bradley was murdered uh, about 12 years ago, and... Uh, Needless to say, I was not very functional for a while afterwards. Uh, I was sad. I cried sometimes, uh, several times during the day. Uh, in my practice, I was in with four of the doctors, and they were just really insistent that I needed to take some antidepressants because they thought I was depressed. And I didn't feel I was depressed. I felt like I was just sad. Uh -huh. I was. I'm having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Can you talk into the phone a little louder? Yeah, as uh, as I said, as uh, my son was murdered, and I was in practice with four other people, um, I was I was sad. I cried some during the day. Right. I'd have to, I'd have now to you were on. in practice with uh, other doctors. Yes, uh, four of the doctors. Uh, all, what kind all of, of them thought I needed an antidepressant. Yeah, so they wanted you to go on antidepressants. Right. Uh, and you? Well, I, I didn't. I, I knew what depression was. Uh, I was very sad. But I wasn't clinically depressed. I was functioning, and I could think clearly, and uh, and I felt like I just needed to deal with grief. I did not need to take a bunch of medications. Uh -huh. And how did they feel about that? Well, I think that they would have felt more comfortable. I think that they're just, they wanted me to be back like I used to be. Uh, right. It took a long time for me to get back like I used to be, and I don't think the antidepressants would have gotten me there any quicker. Uh-huh. Now, um, how soon after did they want you to take them? Oh, this was two months. Yeah, so so they're really they're really getting uncomfortable by this right. time. Yeah. Um, what about uh, Valium? Do you have any thoughts on that as a doctor? Yeah, and I never, uh, not never, but I very very seldom prescribe that for uh, for much of anything. To be real honest, because it's 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 okay for short term use. It's not good for depression usually because it's a downer, and most uh -huh. people are already down to start with. Right. And do you see other doctors trying to give that or other therapists? Or? Oh, I think that that's the first thing they do is particularly, um, you know, if someone is crying a lot, well, here, you need to take some Valium, Valium or Xanax or Ativan or something like that. Uh -huh. And um, and those are just too easy, too easy to get um, habituated on and right. get addicted to. And, and then not going through the grieving process also. No, I think that it blunts, that, blunts how they react to that. Now, if someone is clinically depressed, uh, they may need an antidepressant, I think, to get them back to the same level everybody else is. But but all it's going to do is it'll bring them back up to the same level of grieving someone who's not clinically depressed is. But there's, right. there's very, very little place, I think, for the Valium-type medications in treating um, grief at all. Uh -huh. Depression, most of the time. I think one of the things in my experience that happens also is people are there grieving a loss with you and you miss it. 
you know, they're ready to, I mean, you, you need to be in the intense grief. Do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I found uh, with people that um, say at the funeral home, you know, you're you're like I I can't grieve anymore, and then somebody comes up and really starts grieving. And it's good because it keeps you going. Uh, you it know? does. It does. And and uh, there you just there's some things you just you can't go around. You've got to go through. Right. And, um, and I find that very it was very helpful. I, in fact, it was interesting as. I had never, last time I had cried was when I was nine years old. Hmm. And I found it very relieving to be able to cry. But usually I would have to sit around and think up sad things uh, about my son. Right. And, cry. and then I felt better afterwards. Right, because it is a tension reliever. I was talking a little bit earlier on the show about the fact that women actually have more propensity to cry because uh, some of the hormones for milk let down actually... Um, are also what causes tears. Right, right. Is that so they're right? able more to do that. So it can be difficult for a guy to get that release. It is, but when you do, it it is helpful. Right, yeah. Uh, what about sleeping pills? How do you feel about those? Sleeping pills? Uh-huh. Uh, I was frightened of them. Uh, and, and so what I did is uh, I had call every third night, which meant I was up all night. And so if I and I wasn't sleeping well to start with, so if I was up all night the night before I had called, I mean I was up two nights in a row and I was not going to be very sharp. Wow! So yeah. I, I allowed myself one Benadryl the night before I had called. Uh huh. I, I think that's a good point because long. yeah, I think sleeping pills really have a place with grief and loss. You know, limited. I think because sometimes you've just got to get a night's sleep. You have you to go to be work. Careful. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, and most of the time. You can do quite well with just Benadryl or one of the antihistamines. Um, Ambien is probably safe. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't. I don't like you. A lot of people they'll wind up using Valium and Xanax and those sort of pills for sleep. Yeah. And so I don't think they're real good as a sleep medication. Yeah, I think they're better off taking an Ambien and saying this is a sleeping pill. I will take right. it, and then uh, you know I will take it for a few days, and then I will not take it. Well, you that's why I think that's why I limited myself to um, every third night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who do, uh, as far as antidepressants go, um, one of the things I've been kind of reading up on them a little bit recently. In uh, uh, in the 1990s, uh, doctors started prescribing them for long-term use because there was some st- uh, studies that suggested a depression relapse was likely if antidepressants were discontinued, and that has been found not to be true. And that is interesting to me because uh, I know some people who are on them long-term who've lost a child. And uh, that's an interesting idea that that you need antidepressants and that you need to stay on them longer. Yeah, I had several, uh, and I I think it it depends. If you've had a clinical depression before or you're one of these people who is prone to clinical depression, you may well need them for a lot longer. Yes, and that's um, a good point. You really need to look at pre-having the child die. Right, and normally what I would do is it's going to take, people need to realize it's going to take two or three weeks if it's going to help them to help them. Right. And uh, normally what I would do is, is try a person on it for three to maybe four months and then say, let's start trying to decrease the dose. If they relapse, we go back. If, but quite often, you're kind of over the hump then, and they can cope fairly well without them after three to four months. Right. And I think you make another good point, and that is to taper down. There are some people who just take you off of them. No, it's because then you're going usually going to rebound. And yeah. So I, I, I would usually drop the dose by a third. Uh, maybe a third a week for three weeks, maybe even a month. 
Well, how, uh, who do you think should prescribe them? Do you have any thoughts about? I think a well-trained family practitioner can do it. I was a family practitioner, and I treated a lot of depressed patients and think I did a pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see it pretty quickly if it really does uh, right. yeah, work you, for them, you know, too. You know, it's interesting. that's what I would tell people, that you know, sometimes you just don't know. And so I would say, look, uh, we're going to do this for three weeks. Uh, if, it, and if it makes a difference, it, it's not a, it's not one of those little bit of difference, well, maybe I feel a little better. You feel a lot different. All right. And yeah. Uh, how would you decide, uh, you know, have you dealt, I'm sure you have, but what about unresolved grief? Do you, were you able to find that as a uh, practitioner, that there was some, when you were giving people antidepressants, maybe they had a, a loss a long time ago? or uh, That and uh, many people, you know, you don't grieve someone for a while. Uh, the other thing that I found, too, was a lot of times physicians, uh, you I, I used and it's trite, but I used to tell people that that you need to you may need to medicate yourself for a clinical depression, but you talk your way through grief, and uh, and so I, I had a very good counselor, uh, just a clinical social worker, but who was excellent uh, grief counselor, uh-huh. and so I didn't have time to, to talk as long to patients as as they needed, so I would refer them to her, and she and I would work together. I yeah, I was going to ask you that. There's just not the time to explore that, unfortunately, which is what I think sometimes happens with physicians is that they just don't have the time right. to go so back there. It's just the not there. And you, can, and you can manage the medications. And we would get the patients released so that we could talk to each other, too, and compare and uh-huh. do, do you remember any specific cases where it was really successful uh, with oh, grief? Uh, quite a few of them, yeah. You got one you can give us? Uh, well, I had had one person who um, they they needed to they had lost a chi- they had lost a sibling many years before, mm-hmm. and then their child died, and so they they it all came pouring back, and they needed to talk their way through both of these things, and I just didn't have the time to do that, and um, they they had had problems with depression in the past, and so I got them on an antidepressant. They then really you could tell they they had perked up, but they were still grieving badly, uh-huh. and uh, and I got them to the grief counselor who was able to work with them in resolving, not resolving, but at least modifying both of these grief reactions that they were having right. at the same time. Yeah. I, I, when I worked in the University of Rochester Medical Center, um, I had a woman who came in who had an automobile accident, and she, when she got on painkillers, she uh, started dealing with the loss of her sibling when she was like 12 in an automobile accident. And it was very dramatic and uh, really looked at how unresolved grief can pop up at times when, you know, you are kind of uh, something else has gone on in your life. All of a sudden it, it, it uh, reappears. Well, very I had, interesting. I actually had that with myself because my father was very ill when my son was murdered. And he was living in our house. We were taking care of him. He died six weeks later. And I, I never really gave Dad a second thought. And five years later, when my mother died, uh-huh. uh, I had to stop. I was driving across state, and I had to stop at every rest stop to cry uh-huh. for my dad than for her. Right. I have some poems. I'm not sure what would what would be fitting right here. <laughs> uh, I can read you, read you one. All right. Yeah, uh, just, just it's it's just so often, uh, particularly in death of young people, is it's it's a sudden thing. 
uh, it's usually if they have an accident or something like this, and you have no warning that it's coming. And uh, our son was that way. He was murdered, and we just got the phone call in the middle of the night. And, in fact, the first little poem I wrote was called An Ordinary Day. And it was titled, the title is An Ordinary Day. It was just another day. No one special came. Nothing unusual happened. The evening was the same. Just an ordinary day. And then the telephone rang. From that moment on forever, everything was changed. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank well, you very much. I, I think it describes so much what goes on. You, 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 we just dance along in life's about life's just going along very nicely, and then in a second, it's shattered and never does go back together again like the way we'd like it. Right. It's amazing how quickly that change happens to us, isn't it? Right. And, in a uh, moment. And with, well, no pre- with no preparation, there have been many good studies uh, that have shown that with a sudden loss, an unexpected loss, the recovery is a whole lot longer than it is with an anticipated loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. However, that uh, my experience is at that moment, and you know because you've dealt with death also as a physician, at that moment when you tell a parent, mm-hmm. they have never given up that hope. There's that moment when no matter how bad it is, there's, it's an incredible moment. Oh, and you, you never forget it. Yeah. Yeah, you relive that. You relive that one over and over for a long time. Right, and have you found that even with parents whose children have had long-term illness? Yeah, it's, it's usually the you know kind of the really shocking moment with them is as much the moment of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Oh, you found the moment of diagnosis. Is yeah, it's when you go in and you tell them your child has leukemia. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. That 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 is where it starts for them, and the you know the problem with them is that they have they don't. With us, we have a before and after, and with them, they have a before, then they have a during, and then an after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those during can be very disruptive to families, has been my experience. Has that right. been yours? Yeah, yeah, they have relapses and, and remissions, and, and you get your hopes up, and then they're dashed, and so they get it several times quite often. Right, yes, for sure. Well, I was talking to you, uh, we were talking to Kathy about uh, her son, Dan, who... Um, uh, sister died in an automobile accident, and he saw he was in the accident with his mom and his dad. And um, he it happened when he was 12, and now he's relapsing, or you might say reliving would be probably a better word for a grieving person, at age 22. Have you got any thoughts about that? I've seen it happen a lot. I, I, I don't know if it's just that uh, I have a lot of my son's uh, diaries that he kept, and when he got to be about 20, it was almost like he was looking retrospectively and looking at life and thinking about his own mortality. And I think that this may really bring it to light for these folks. Step a little bit, Richard. I'm having trouble uh, hearing you. That it, it brings it kind of brings it to light for these folks that that you are mortal. And uh, I think it's in your teenage years sometimes you forget that, but once you get in your 20s, you start thinking about that again. Um, and, and I think that this sometimes will, will get to them uh, at this point where it didn't early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that may be part of what's going on. Um, she said, uh, Kathy said he had talked about suicide. He does have a good therapist. And uh, I said that maybe he could do a suicide contract. Have you ever done any of those? 
Uh, no, I haven't. Usually when someone, I, I felt like they were real suicidal risk. I felt like, and you know, I was a family practitioner, that they needed more help than perhaps I could give them. So I would refer them to a psychiatrist at that point. Right. But uh, I've had several patients who's someone in their family, their father or a brother or sister, had died by suicide. And I think it's one of the urban myths that goes on about suicide, that if someone in the family dies, then it runs in the family and it's kind of you're predestined to do it. I think that's a good point and and because you're not at all. In fact, when I work with families, sometimes I say, you are now a non-suicidal family. It is not an option. It's happened once in your family. You've seen how disruptive it is, how awful, and you take a pledge as a family not to have it as an option because I've had people tell me, well, it's an option now in our family, and I'm like, no, no way. Well, as, as I, as a lot of the ones I saw, I mean, you looked on not only as an option, but almost uh, an inevitability. Right. That, uh, my dad committed suicide, and maybe someone else did, so it's just a matter of time till I do also. And um, and that that's just, that's, that's it's one of those myths like, you know, 80% of marriages end in divorce after a child dies. Exactly. Everyone accepts that. It's just totally not true. Right. I'm glad you brought that up, and we'll be doing a show with Wayne Loader on that, uh, the fact that um, there's, well, I don't know, maybe it's our compassionate friends population, but uh, there was a study done that showed, what, 12% of compassionate friends, uh, people divorced. Yeah, the they, were, they were about like the rest of the population. Uh, but, but you know, I think that it's the same type of urban myth that if uh, if there's suicide in the family, it's almost like a bad gene, that, that then you're at much greater risk. Right. Absolutely. Well, do you have anything else you want to say on the topic of antidepressants? Um, I think you have to be uh, – there are a couple of things. Is a lot of people worry about antidepressants. Am I going to get – you know, there are – I think there are two two extremes we go to, uh, and I think that uh, many times support groups and counselors as a group tend perhaps to to shy away from antidepressants too strongly, and physicians and psychiatrists tend to rely on them too much, and the truth right. is somewhere in between. Uh, and one of the fears, though, is that uh, you're going to you will get uh, addicted to an antidepressant. They are totally non-addictive. Right, right, the because they're really the just making your own uh, neurotransmitters stay around in the body longer, correct? Right, and then if you stop them, uh, the worst thing that happens is you go back to being depressed, or you, but you don't, it, you don't get addicted. You have withdrawal symptoms and seizures like you can from Valium and that sort of thing. So that, that's one of the points that I would make is that, that you, you don't get addicted to these. And then the second thing is, is that with the newer antidepressants, uh, the Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Effexor type antidepressants, uh, these are very, very safe medications. Uh, with the older type, uh, at the Elevil that we used to use, uh-huh. I, I was very careful and gave very small prescriptions because they, they were, they were really dangerous from your heart. If you took a lot of those, you could kill yourself very easily. And uh-huh. Almost impossible to kill yourself with Prozac. Right. Uh, what What about uh, alcohol and uh, and antidepressants? Al- alcohol. Uh, I, that's one of the things I talk to patients about right off the bat. Is that alcohol is is really not a good thing to have around when you're going through grief. 
Uh-huh. Um, now, if you you know if you if you want to have a glass of wine with dinner, okay, no problem. But if you start using it as a medication, if you're going to use it to help you get to sleep at night, you're headed for problems. If you are drinking more than you drank before, alcohol in and of itself is a depressant, and so uh, it can make you more depressed than you were before. Right. Yeah. I don't think people realize that it is a depressant. Oh yeah, it's a, and I think that's one of the causes. A lot of alcoholics, I think, are alcoholics because they have an underlying depression, and they try treating it with the alcohol, and they temporarily feel a little better. But when they quit, they feel worse, so they drink some more, and then they wind up where they can't quit. Right, and you wonder, uh, Richard, how many of those alcoholics have unresolved grief? Well, oh, I'm sure a lot of them do. I'm sure a lot of them do. But, and they're self-medicating with the, this, and it, as you yeah. say, it is a downer. Well, and the other thing about alcohol that's dangerous in, in a grief process or in a depression is that uh, when you're taking even Valium or Elevil or any of these things, somebody else holds the reins. They control it. I, I, you have to get a prescription from me to go get right. it. You don't need a prescription to go down and get a bottle of vodka. Right, and and a, uh, as I understand it, a shot of whiskey is the same as a Valium. It is, um, it, and it, just like the Valium, it's a downer. And the last thing a person grieving needs is a downer. Right, especially uh, it's not fair to the family either. And plus, again, I say they miss out on the whole grieving process. Uh, they, they may not miss out on it, but they may postpone it for a good long time. <laughs> Right. Well, Richard, thank you very much for being on the show today, and it's time to close. And I want to thank uh, all my call-ins and, uh, and again, my special guest, Richard Dewan. Thank you for reading your poetry. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.